Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. All right, well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Kenneth Reed. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thank you. I'm glad glad to be here. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I met, uh, I heard of you through uh, Dr. Uh, Micah Edmondson. So uh, you come, you come highly recommended. Um, for those who don't know who, who you are, uh, just give us a little bit of background. Sure. Um, my name's Kenneth Reed. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I, For my education, I went to the University of Georgia and majored in mathematics. And then I got my theological training um, from Dallas Theological Seminary, earned a THM there. Then I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, earned a one-year THM there, and earned a PhD in 2015. Um, my topic of my dissertation was dealing with a defense of penal substitutionary atonement. I am married. We are living in Grand Rapids, and we are we have just enjoyed our time here. God has really blessed us here. So I'm now teaching systematic theology and historical theology at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. That's awesome. And it was a pleasure to meet you and your wife at Courageous Conversations. So uh, it's good to meet you. you. So we're going to talk about something that's not controversial at all today. (laughs) (laughs) Something very, very simple and easy. Hell, the topic of hell. Um, (laughs) When you think about uh, people's views on hell, uh, what usually comes to your mind? Well, hell is such an uncomfortable topic. Um, um, It's frightening, to be quite honest, and rightfully so. Um, So there are some who want to reject hell or at least ignore it um, simply because of the frightening nature of um, torment eternally. Um, It is not a topic that 
anyone would get any joy out of. So, and so I affirm that, I affirm that you definitely should be troubled by the prospect of hell. And rightfully so, I also believe, I also see that people will try to dismiss it, ignore it, or even redefine it in different ways so that to take away the force of the calamity and the and just the tragedy of anyone who will wind up there. So I would say that it's definitely uncomfortable, but it is a part of biblical revelation. And so I think we do need to deal with it and deal with it um, in a straightforward manner. Yes. It is it is very uncomfortable, but we definitely have to deal with it. <laughs> deal with yes. it be deal with it even though it's uncomfortable. So we're gonna dive right in and talk about like what does the Bible say about hell? And um when we think about how how the old testament kind of um talks about hell and the new testament kind of talks about hell, it kind of seems to be uh different um because there are different words to describe, like Sheol. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does the Old Testament talk about the concept of hell? As I would say that in the Old Testament, the concept of hell is very underdeveloped. Um, there's not a lot in the Old Testament, even about personal eschatology, what happens to us when we die and the final judgment. Um, when we think about Old Testament cosmology, um, there's a view of God in heaven, of us on earth, and then Sheol, which is basically the place of the dead. So, and the place of the dead can be the wicked and it can be the righteous as well. So uh, we don't have a lot of information about that. I would say that the belief in the resurrection is hinted at in the Old Testament in different places. And we can see some hints of what we would um, what would come to be the New Testament teaching about hell in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, um, there's an eschatological vision that Isaiah is putting forth. And in this eschatological vision, um, in, ver- in verse 22, he says, As for the new moons and the new earth I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And verse 24 is very interesting. It says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for the worm, their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, of course, the reference to worm, the worm not dying may be familiar if you look at some of Jesus's comments in the New Testament. So this may be a quote or reflection that Jesus uses to go back to this particular passage. However, I don't think we should be so quick to say that they are talking about hell in its developed form as we know it in the New Testament. I think what we can see is that this is an eschatological concept that this is going to be something, whatever's being described in Isaiah right here, that is going to happen in the future. There is a separation between the righteous and the wicked. And then somehow fire is linked with them. And fire is a symbol that is used in the Old Testament as well for judgment. 
The other passage that gives us a hint would be perhaps Daniel chapter 2, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And that talks about the resurrection, but in verse 2 it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so even there we see a division again between some to life, um, usually implied as the righteous, and some to shame and contempt. So there is a hint in the Old Testament, and there is foundation for thinking, for linking the new concept of the New Testament concept of hell into the Old Testament. I would also say that in the intertestamental literature, um, I think we need to be careful because there are some passages that. Are, passages that imply annihilationism, but there is another passage that pictures hell as a fiery abyss of the final judgment in 1 Enoch 90, 26. And though that is not the word of God, we can see that there is some foundation where the Jews are starting to think of hell in a more developed way. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful. So how does hell develop in the New Testament? Well, I would say Jesus is most responsible for our um, concept of hell. Um, um, many scholars have noted that Jesus is the one who talks more about hell than anybody else. And so we just need to look at his words and see what he actually says about it. Um, just to give you a few examples, Matthew twenty-two, Matthew 5, 22. Um, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Um, Matthew 18, 19, if your eye causes you to sin, I'm sorry, that's Matthew 18, 9. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. So the implications of these verses, Jesus is showing us that hell is dreadful, but it is conscious and also unending. And Jesus uses it as a motivating factor in order to get things right with God right now, in order that people may avoid this judgment. Um, there are quite a few other passages that Jesus uses. If you think about Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, there he talks about the separation of the goats, of the sheep and the goats. And in that separation, the righteous go on to be with God to eternal life. The wicked go to eternal punishment. And what is striking about that passage is that both, both the wicked and the righteous are going to some type of eternal abode. So there seems to be a symmetry that if the righteous are going to an eternal destiny, the wicked will also go to an eternal destiny. Um, I think another passage that is very powerful is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, which is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And of course, we know that the rich man ended up in torment. Lazarus ended up um, in Abraham's bosom in a place of paradise. And so there are some who would dismiss this particular text because it is a parable. However, what I would argue is that this, this picture of hell 
or torment is consistent with Jesus's other teachings. So I don't think that this can be dismissed out of um, so quickly. And so I think Jesus gives us a a very firm foundation for um, believing that the nature of hell is conscious, is everlasting, and is dreadful and tormenting. And so when we think about the New Testament teaching regarding hell, most of the foundation of it is from Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting uh, because some like to paint the picture of Jesus as kind of this um, somebody who is, I don't know, it's, it's almost like not a complete picture of who he is in scripture. And so it's interesting that he has so much to say about hell and most of what we know about hell comes from him. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to add, um, yes, I would agree. Is if you're going to take Jesus's kindly comments and, quote, tolerable comments, you have to take the ones that you have to take seriously, the ones where he talks about hell, too. You have to take the whole Jesus as revealed in the, in all, the whole Gospels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about, I think about Revelation and um, how John says uh, that hell will be cast into the lake of fire. So it seems to suggest that hell right now is not on fire, a place of um, where people are actually burning now, but a Mm -hmm. place that in the final judgment will be a place that is cast in the lake of fire, which I think is a, a different understanding of how people, when they think of hell now, they think of just people in torment um, and burning now and not later. Mm-hmm. I would agree in a formal sense, hell is eschatological and the lake of fire. Um, there, I think as we think about the pers- personal eschatology or where we go after we die, um, the Bible is clear that those who are um, have a relationship with God will go to a place called paradise. And so, and but that place is still a holding place until the final judgment. And correspondingly, the Bible would say that there is another place that the wicked would go. Um, it's usually referred to as Hades. Um, and Hades may be a, a place that has both righteous and wicked, but their destinies are different. However, I would say that there is still some torment that is implied in the destination of the wicked after they die. And so they would not wind up formally in hell until the final judgment. Mm -hmm, That's helpful. What are some common misconceptions you think about just the discussion around hell? Um, Common misconceptions. First, perhaps that hell is not possible because God is all loving. And I think we need to, um, first of all, think about God's nature. Um, God is fully loving, but he's also holy, just, gracious. We don't prioritize one of God's perfections over the other, but they all cohere together. I believe an ancient view of God's perfections that unified them, we would call it simplicity. 
That is, we don't isolate or we don't isolate his perfections one above the other, but they are all unified and cohere together. Although we can only conceive of them in sequence and apart, and we can only see them exercised in different ways, but we cannot really wrap our minds around the simplicity of God. But when I think about it, I think some of his, many of his acts show both his mercy, his love, as well as his justice and wrath. And so can a loving God send people to hell? Well, if we think about just his nature, he's loving and just. Another thing to think about when when we deal with the love of God is, is God loving if he approves of sin or if he lets wrongdoing go unpunished? I'm not sure that is a loving thing. I think it's more loving for God to deal with sin. Another aspect of God's love to think about is God is loving because he has provided a way of escape from hell. That is, he has sent his son, and his son took on the punishment, the wrath out of a motivation of love so that we may be saved from hell. So, yes, God's love enters in in the fact that he is against evil and sin, and God's love enters because he himself provides a way of escape through his son. And then finally, God's love honors the free choice of humanity. So if humans choose to reject him, then he honors that choice. So that's one misconception I think that people have, that the love of God and the, and the existence of hell cannot cohere together. That leads me to my next question. Um, <laughs> uh, is hell unjust? Uh, because when we think about um, uh, justice, I think mm-hmm. a lot of talks around hell seem like it means that hell is unfair for people um, if because it basically puts everybody on the same playing field as far as sin. So a murderer, a rapist, and somebody mm-hmm. who's a liar that may tell what we call white lies, if they're unrepentant, they end up in the same destination. And it doesn't seem like the crime fits the punishment um, in, in the eyes of many people. And I understand that because the way our, mm-hmm. we think about justice now, there's um, our thoughts about how some of our laws, especially as it relates to African-Americans, when uh, we're getting... African-Americans are getting longer sentences for minor crimes and we're advocating for a justice system that's fair. And so it seems in many minds that God's justice system isn't fair. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about how uh, is the concept of hell unjust when we think of it in light of our current justice system? Absolutely. And I would say that first, uh, when we think about justice, that it is intuitive to think that an everlasting punishment 
is appropriate for what we might call, quote, little sins or things like that, that um, the most extreme um, person that many people might bring up is Adolf Hitler and say, well, I'm not that bad. So I don't necessarily deserve that. I think we have to um, look at whether hell is unjust and according to God's standard. What is God's standard regarding um, just and unjust? In other words, what is his requirement? If his requirement is perfection, then falling short um, of God's perfection has been deemed by him a sentence worthy of death. And when we talk about that, that's in an eschatological sense. So one common theological answer to this question is that a sin against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment. Now, of course, this is a theological answer. It's not spelled out in scripture, but I do think that there is some grounding for it. Um, sin is not merely just um, a finite act that has finite repercussions. We don't know the we don't know the destructiveness of our sin, not only in God's sight, but also to others who are around us. Only God has the infinite wisdom to know that. Only God has the infinite knowledge to know not only destructive effects of our sin, but the but the power and the offensiveness of sin against him. And so he, only he as a righteous judge whose character is righteous could make that kind of determination. So in my eyes, if I'm just looking according to human standards, I, I don't see it, but I do understand that I have a very limited perspective. And because I see the Bible as God's complete God's um, final and complete revelation of him, his son, Jesus Christ, of our, of our way of salvation, because the Bible is God's word and affirms this, I don't have a problem affirming it because I trust in the justice of God. I would also have to say that Jesus does imply that there are degrees of punishment. So everybody does not get the same punishment. There are some who will be judged more because they had more knowledge. So even in Jesus's talk about hell, he doesn't always say that everyone gets the same, but there's still a judgment there. It's just that if someone does not know Christ, they will be away from, they will be away from God and in a place that is apart from him. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. I I always think about uh, when I think about degrees of sin. I always think about the first sin committed, mm -hmm. and all of we are here with all the sinfulness in the world because somebody ate fruit. <laughs> as, as I as I think about it, original sin, the first original sin was not a sexual act. Mm -hmm. It was not murder. We are here with all the chaos in this world because somebody ate fruit. And the more <laughs> I meditate on that, the more I start to see the the sin, really the severity of sin is the actual disobeying God's command. Yes. Whatever that command is, whether it's the small 
as one would think, eating fruit or committing murder or genocide. Mm -hmm. It seems as if the nature of sin is disobedience to God's word, no matter how small or how big. And so the more I think about that, it's like, that means God takes what he says as a commandment for us seriously, so seriously that we are in a chaotic world because somebody ate fruit. And it's like, when you start thinking about that, you're like, it, it takes on a whole new meaning for you. If you, you know, one would say that's extreme, which it seems extreme to me, you know, in my own finite mind. Right. Um, but that's just how seriously God takes his word. So if you accept, for me, if you accept that we're in chaos now and evil is is present in this world because of the original sin, because of Adam and Eve eating fruit, then it seems to me that the other things shouldn't be as far-fetched. Um, you almost have to not accept that part for the other things to not make sense. So I get it. If you if you don't affirm original sin, if you don't think that we're here today because they ate fruit, then I can get the conclusion of the severity of sin doesn't fit the crime. Um, the degrees of sin don't fit the crime. But if you can accept that, then it seems logical to be able to kind of grasp that whole part. Because that part to me is the, the biggest stumbling block. Absolutely. Um, there's another word that I like to use. Um, I, I love what you said about disobedience, but also think about rebellion. And I think that term uh, brings another dimension. It's like, I'm establishing my kingdom. I'm establishing my rule against God. And I think in some sense, that is what sin is. And that's what Adam did in just eating that little piece of fruit. <laughs> Yes. Um, so when we think about hell, uh, continuing this, uh, this easy discussion, uh, <laughs> I, I want to talk about the, the concept of where the church was in the formation of the doctrine of hell um, in the early church. Because some, some would argue that the early church kind of didn't have a concept of hell. It wasn't a big deal to them. Um, and this is something that just developed as uh, civilization went on. And this is something that was constructed to keep people, especially Africans, oppressed. So mm -hmm. this was just something that a doctrine created for, for, for further oppression. This was not something that the early church uh, believed in. This is a later development. Um, as a systematic theologian and a historical theologian, um, what are your views on, on that pushback? Uh, thank you. And actually, that couldn't be further from the truth that the view of hell as eternal conscious torment was in the early church just about from its inception. If we um, think about, first of all, the rule of faith. The rule of faith is basically this rule that the whole church um, submitted to as the pure testimony of Christian theology. In its um, shortened form, you will find it in the Apostles' Creed. But as we, when, there are two places in which the rule of faith is expressed in some of the early Christian writings. The first is in Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies. 
in that book, he is, of course, dealing with the heretics of his day, particularly Gnosticism. And in book three, chapter four, verse two, um, when he's describing the rule of faith, one of the phrases there he, say, he says is, the judge of those who are judged, talking about Christ, and sending into eternal fire those who transform the truth and despise his father and his advent. And so even there we see that Irenaeus, who is a second century theologian, has already codified the rule of faith that has already been going around in the early church. Um, you can see this in the third century theologian Tertullian in his prescription against heresies, heretics. He says in chapter 13 that the last part of the rule, rule of faith, and I quote, and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire, unquote. And so we see that the rule of faith is already including hell as a part of normal Christian theology. We can see this phrase a little bit later in the Athanasian Creed, and um, which is written in the earliest dated to the fifth century, latest seventh century. But there's a line that says, those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter into eternal fire. And so we see even in the very early church that hell is a staple of Christian theology. Perhaps the one who most powerfully set the agenda for this theology is Augustine. And he argues in his City of God for the eternal punishment of the wicked as a feature of Christian theology. He deals with different objections to hell as well. For example, one of the objections he deals with is that physical torment destroys the physical body. Thus, endless physical torment is impossible. And he responds, well, the resurrection body is constituted differently and therefore is constituted to live forever. Therefore, the wicked are able to endure internal punishment. Um, another objection he says is that limited sin over a limited lifespan does not deserve eternal punishment. Um, that's another form of the objections, objections that we hear today. Um, his response was that we need to understand the enormous nature of Adam's sin. And we also need to, in, need to realize that the more joy and the more blessing we get because of our relationship with God, the greater the wickedness and the greater the consequences for abandoning God as well. But I actually like something that Augustine says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, uh, regarding his commentary in Matthew 25, 46. This is, again, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And this is something he says. He says, if both destinies are eternal, meaning the righteous and the wicked, then we must un either understand both as long continued, but at last terminating, or both as endless, for they are correlative. On the one hand, punishment eternal. On the other hand, life eternal. And to say one in the same sense, life eternal should be endless, punishment eternal should come to an end, is the height of absurdity. Wherefore, as the eternal life of the saints shall be endless, so the eternal punishment of those who are doomed to it shall have no end. 
And so he points out again, the continuity of that verse. If you have eternal life, you're going to have eternal punishment as well. And so from the very early foundation of the church, from the rule of faith to Augustine to Athanasius, we see that hell is a staple of Christian theology. Mm-hmm. How did the, the, the thoughts of hell develop during the Enlightenment? I would say during the Enlightenment, because there was a rejection of, um, because there was a rejection of authority and ultimately a, a rejection of biblical revelation, a rejection of the church, the doctrine of hell became mythologized so that um, hell began to be looked at as just myth or perhaps a way to encourage people to, um, to behave rightly. However, the reality of hell was looked uh, was probably, I would say, allegorized or mythologized more. And so that is the trajectory that the Enlightenment and the theologies that came afterward would take that doctrine. And so would it be fair to, to suggest that the obliteration of hell was actually a white construct? Or German? I would I would say that is start I would I think we can make that implication, yes, because it was German theological the German theological approach that brought about the skepticism at first, and then of course it spread throughout Europe. Um, we did not see that particular emphasis in other in other contexts in the world. So I would agree with you there. That that is definitely a um an evolution of European theological reflection. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting uh, that the foundational aspects of um, when we we think about like the alle- allegorizing of hell was not necessarily an African African construct, but was a European one. Um, and as you said, the formation of the doctrine. <laughs> came from, or the thoughts of it, not the formation, because Jesus actually had a lot to say about it. But when you, th- when you started naming like Athanasians and Tertullian, those were Africans. And then we talked about the allegorizing of it. It was Europeans. And then we come to America today, and one would argue that uh, Europeans created the doctrine of hell to further oppress Africans. Um, so it's, it kind of is inconsistent with history, but it does show, um, you know, the gap there. Now, I do believe, I, I, I will say that Europeans that had Africans um, did uh, push on that narrative to further oppress. So there is truth in that, in right. a sense. Uh, so I don't want to act like there there was just this purified uh, motive there, because there was not to people manipulate the scriptures for their own gain. So that's throughout history, but when we look at the 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 teachings itself, there seems to be that if we look at the root of it, um, there is a little bit of revisionist history uh, when we think about how people use um, European scholars to create a as a foundation for their theology to argue against. Um, doctrines that Africans did hold 
um, at one time. So that's it's just interesting to me. It is interesting, and one one thing I'm always fascinated by is the fact is the is the multicultural nature of the early church, and even within that multicultural nature, you see a consensus on the Trinity and the person of Christ. And even in this instance, hell. Um, and of course, the, the modern critical methods were born out of the European approach to theology. It was, um, now, of course, to be fair, um, there were some who will still hold the line that um, even, even as they may not have always been on the right side of um, giving Africans full humanity, they may still say that hell still exists, at least a few of them. So definitely. But just, just to be fair, but I think, I think you have such a great point that the very system that came out of the European theology did kind of mitigate this rebellion against Orthodox Christianity Whereas the system of Orthodox Christianity came up in a multicultural format. So um, I, I definitely see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we think about hell and the different views on it, uh, like you said, annihilationists, kind of can you just give a general overview of the different views uh, that are within a more Orthodox tradition of, of hell? So sure. people who affirm the authority of scripture in in a more uh, uh, maximalist view, not necessarily a minimalist view, um, there's some tension on how they view uh, hell. So can you just kind of give an overview of that? Yes, I would say um, probably the two most prominent views right now, um, eternal conscious torment. Um, that is, hell is a place for the wicked in which they will consciously suffer pain eternally. Um, and then you have different variations of this view, but the main issue is that it is conscious eternal torment. Then you have a terminal punishment view, which is, of course, the annihilationist view. That is that the fate of the wicked is death, but death means extinction. And so after the final judgment, the person ceases to exist rather than continuing on in eternal punishment. And then, of course, um, I would say there's also a universalist view, um, the view that all people would eventually be reconciled to Christ. So both, uh, I'd say um, those three views, particularly the first two. Mm -hmm. when, when we think about universal, that kind of probably leads, leans into a little bit of your dissertation. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, did you, did you mention the sufficiency of uh, <laughs> of Christ's death and what it what it entailed and what it did not entail. Um, when we think about that, because we talked a little bit about where where like Carlton Pearson is, um, mm -hmm. that kind of goes into that. Can you talk about how you engage with that kind of thought about how that? I engage with the sufficiency of Christ? Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see. Well, um, in my dissertation, I mainly made an argument that the um, that penal substitution was necessary for the blessings of the new covenant coming in the new created order. 
Now, I would say that one way of thinking about that is this, is that penal substitution is required for forgiveness. And there are several scriptures that bear this out, that without Jesus's death, then there is no grace basis for forgiveness. I believe that that is established in the Old Testament when we think about um, the different sacrifices, particularly the sin offering and the guilt offering, um, the Day of Atonement, that those sacrifices bring forgiveness. And so um, without forgiveness, then there is no sufficient sacrifice. There is no sufficient basis for forgiveness, and thus um, that that aspect of salvation is lost, and thereby a person's sin is still held against them. So Christ's death is sufficient in the sense that Christ paid for our sin by bearing it himself for us. And as he does so, his sin imputed on our behalf so that when we believe in him, he becomes our sufficient sacrifice and thus his righteousness is credited to us. I would say furthermore that Jesus's death is sufficient in and of itself, but of course it only applies to us. So as we believe in him. So have I gotten to the core of what you were look what you were thinking about? Yes. Um I think that kind of explains kind of how you how you kind of deal with that if you were dealing with. Are you familiar with Carlton Pearson? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I am. Um, yes, I think um, his view of universalism. Um, I, I understand his what he's trying to do. I just don't think that he gets it right when he when you look at just not what Christ has done for us, but the multifaceted um, nature of Christ's work, um, his life, his resurrection, and the gospel grounded in his work. Um, I just think that he, he goes in a different direction that is not corresponding to biblical revelation. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could get you to, uh, to write an article on that uh, <laughs> <a> later. <laughs> for Jude 3. Um, So I just, what other things uh, would you want to leave our audience with as it relates to to hell? Um, How has your view developed, if it has changed any? And what books would you recommend as people want to dive deeper in this as they're trying to, to, to sharpen their own view or even be challenged um, in some way? And um, yeah, those those are my two final questions. Okay, sure. Um, let me let me do the books first because those are um, I already have those on top of mind. Um, um, one one book, if you if a person wants to look at just all the different views together and the theologians as they um, respond to one another, it's called Four Views on Hell. It is in the Zondervan um, Counterpoint series. I think that gives you gives a very good um, taxonomy of the views. Um, and another good book is called Hell Under Fire. So both of those books would be good resources. Regarding my 
um, evolution. I've, I, I would say that I endorse the eternal conscious torment view. I believe that it is the view that is most attested to in scripture. I believe that as you look from the New Testament, from Jesus's teachings to Paul's, to Hebrews, to then to Revelation, I think as you put all of those together, it is the most consistent view. Even if some want to argue that hell is metaphorical, um, while the images may be metaphorical, there is a real principle under there that those who do not know Christ are headed for a destiny away from God. And I believe that the Bible speaks with a clear voice in that. I would also say that the doctrine of hell is important because it informs our other doctrines as well. For example, the doctrine of hell will point out the enormity of sin, that sin is so destructive and offensive to God that hell kind of highlights that. But I also think that hell highlights the overwhelming grace of God and his sending his son, that he truly loved us so much. And if we think about the fact that God chose to chose to and affectionately loves us, even when we were in the language of Ephesians, dead in our transgressions and sins, even as we were children of wrath, even as we were something abhorrent to him in view of our sin, he still loved us so much and cared for us so much. And so I think hell highlights even more the grace of God in his salvation work on our behalf. And then, of course, that he invites us into relationship with him. Mm -hmm. So I think that even though hell is uncomfortable, uh, it's not a topic that I like to think about all the time, but I do think that we need to be honest about it. And we need to recognize that it does highlight God's goodness when we think about the goodness of the salvation that he offers us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a necessary topic because it, it has, if we get hell wrong, it has eternal consequences. Um, <laughs> yes, so, absolutely. <laughs> it's not something that is, you can just not essential to address because if it, is, exists, if it does exist and it is eternal, I would hate to get that wrong for people that I could be sharing the gospel with. Um, so that's why it's important, I believe, for us to address. Um, if, it, if I get to the end and I was wrong about my my view on hell, then at least, you know, there's not really, I think, a, a, a severe consequence for that. Uh, mm-hmm. But if I get it, if, if I am right and I and people are in in conscious torment there is a severity for those who don't know Jesus so I think that's important and number two I think as we think about being in this um, culture now a lot of people are including myself mm-hmm. are justice focused not justice not just justice to come but justice here mm-hmm. um, it is uh it is interesting though that if you don't believe in a judgment to come, mm. then you kind of put all the burden on justice now. Mm. And 
I do, we do fight for justice here on earth. I'm a proponent of it. You know, I'm involved in civil organizations. I'm involved in the, uh, I'm a part of the executive committee for the NAACP here in my city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm involved in justice work. Uh, but I know that my, the justice that I pursue on earth is still mm. not going to be sufficient. We don't have enough uh, manpower. We don't have enough uh just the systems are not set up in a, in a way that would necessarily favor us. And then the generations going by, there's a lot of injustice that just was prevalent. And so I can fight for justice here and still have hope in the justice to come. Mm. Because if I don't have hope in the justice to come, I really won't be able to fight for the justice here. Um, and then I think about those who have gone before us and the injustice that our, our ancestors endured and just think that those people who did those gross injustices just kind of just don't have any, there's no judgment for them. That's a discouraging mm-hmm. factor. Um, so for me to even yes. fight for justice here, I must believe in the injustice to come. Um, there has to be some kind of hope that God will make all things right. And so... Um, I think that's something we should should hold on to. Amen. Amen. Um, Thank you. How would people get in contact with you on social media? Are you on social media? I am on Facebook. Um, see, um, that's um, and um, um, that's all I'm doing right now. I will I will open a Twitter soon. So. <laughs> well, thank you, Doctor Reed. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, hopefully we could get have some more conversations with you uh, soon. So God absolutely, thank. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher. Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.